You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. journeyed with this crazy king, Nebuchadnezzar, for some time. He's erratic. Uh, honestly, uh, he, he's a source of frustration for me. Uh, this is the last uh, chapter that we specifically talk about Nebuchadnezzar. I, I'm pretty tired of writing the word Nebuchadnezzar in my text, right? Uh, it is a long word to continue to write. In fact, I have it copied and I just put control V every time I want to say Nebuchadnezzar in my text. I just co- copy and paste it. And if you're a kid in here and you want to keep track of how many times I say Nebuchadnezzar today, good luck to you. You can do that. If you're an adult, don't do that because that means you're not listening to me. No, and so we, we have journeyed with Nebuchadnezzar. He's been up and down in chapter one. Uh, we remember we heard about Daniel and his friends being taken from their homeland. They resolved themselves not to compromise their values. They refused to eat the food that the king has for them. They obey God, they depend on God, they believe that he is their only hope in life. And so God gives them great amounts of wisdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar found these Israelites to be more than 10 times wiser than any of the wise men in the kingdom of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 gives praise to the God of these men. And then in Daniel chapter 2, we see the Lord give Nebuchadnezzar this dream that only Daniel could interpret. And Daniel made it very clear from its inception that it was God that gave the dream and that the interpretation comes from the one true God. And through this dream, King Nebuchadnezzar learned that only the kingdom of God will last forever. The king learned that God is wise and that his truth is good. And so King Nebuchadnezzar admitted that Daniel's God was the best, as he said, of all the gods. And then last week in Daniel 3, uh, in the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar saw that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was faithful. He could do none, uh, he could not do, I should say, he could do what none other God could do. He could rescue his people. Nebuchadnezzar saw the Lord would step into a burning, fiery furnace for those who trust in his name. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of that, he makes a law that says that no one can speak against the God of Israel. Yet what we see at almost every step of the journey, King Nebuchadnezzar's praise toward God quickly turn away because of the pride that he has in his own heart. It is lip service from a man that has never bowed his knee to declare the God of the universe, sovereign Lord and King. And Nebuchadnezzar's pride is a source of unrelenting uh, pressure. Uh, Frederica Matthews Green, who's a Christian author, she says this, that pride builds a cardboard box or cardboard fortress that humility must every day tear down. Nebuchadnezzar is not great at tearing down his little cardboard fortresses 
afraid. But if there's anybody in the history of the world that could boast about their own status and power that maybe has altered the course of history, it would be somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. His empire in the world was one to be envious of. Uh, His achievements architecturally are the envies of the modern world today, as we remember the hanging gardens of Babylon. His government and rule would be copied for centuries ahead. Yet for all of his glory, Nebuchadnezzar did not have the very thing that he needed and wanted. He had no peace. He is tormented by his own power. He's restless in his pride. The peace that avoids Nebuchadnezzar like a plague can only come to one that humbles themselves to delight in this confession, that it is the most high God that rules the kingdom of man. And so in chapter 4, we see a testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar coming to the end of himself and bowing his knee to the God of heavens. And it reads oddly like a press release moving from Nebuchadnezzar speaking about himself in the first person, and then it becomes a third-person narrative about Nebuchadnezzar, and then it switches back to a first-person confession from Nebuchadnezzar himself at the end. And so we're going to work ourselves all the way through these 37 glorious verses. If this is 37 verses in the book of Romans, uh, we'd be here for two days. But this is a narrative. It's a story. It's a little easier to follow. And so we're going to walk through it all today. So will you pray with me? Father, we come before you today, and we, we are grateful to be in this room. We believe that your word is life for our hearts and our souls. It brings conviction and gladness to our lives. So, Spirit, will you bring these words to life? Uh, Will you use my words according to your purpose, Lord? Will you humble us in your presence today? We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful and wonderful name. Amen. So let's pick this up in chapter 4, reading verses verse 1 and 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, something to note is that this is the only time in our scripture that a pagan king writes in our inspired text. There are other non-Jewish authors. There are uh, Gentile authors, meaning uh, people that are not Jewish. Job, for instance, is not a Jew. He writes the book of Job. Uh, the physician Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, is a non-Jew that writes in our Bible. But there are no other pagan kings that pen in our inspired text. It's something pretty noteworthy. Uh, There is a 30-year history here from the beginning of chapter 1 to the the beginning of chapter 4, which means this is that for 30 years, God has pursued King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think, man, what a grace from our God that he pursues in that way. It is so heartening for us to hear that today, that God never stops being faithful to us. He never stops. Because 30 years is a long time. But what hope we find in this, what hope it gives to us, knowing this is as we reflect the goodness 
and love of God into the world through our faith in Jesus Christ. That all of that work and all of that love that we give to our neighbors and those at our work and in our family, that we want to see humble themselves and come to know our Lord as King. That despite all the years of frustration of seeing them reject us and walk away, that we can have hope knowing this, is that God's timing is not our timing. Uh, wouldn't we love it if with minimal effort, our friends and our family and our coworkers, the ones that we love, would come to worship the God of the universe? But God's faithfulness to Nebuchadnezzar reminds us that it is not us, it's not about us getting what we want. It is about God getting the glory. And there are times in our life that we walk in faithful obedience to people who continue to reject our love, to continue to walk away from the faith, continue to be a frustration to our life, simply because through our faithful obedience to God, he gets more glory than it comes from an instantaneous salvation. Daniel shows us what it is to be like to be faithful to God over 30 years of persistence with a man who refuses to bow his knee. Now, something is happening here in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Uh, These are words that Nebuchadnezzar would never have penned in chapter 1. Something is happening. To say something like, peace be multiplied to you. This is not the remarks of a uh, crazy, uh, cruel King, something is going on in his life, and we begin to hear it in this confession in chapter 4, starting in verse 3. He says this in verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, we have heard that language to some degree before. Nebuchadnezzar has boasted in the previous chapters about the mighty works of God. But in this confession, there is something different. There is an admission to the finite existence of the kingdom of man and the infinite rule and reign of the everlasting kingdom of God that endures forever. Something is happening in Nebuchadnezzar's hearts. And what we see starting in verse 4 is the root of of his conversion, the root of his submission. And again, it comes to him as a dream. And so we'll pick it up here in verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. And they might make known to me this, the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, uh, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirits of the holy God is, God's is in you, and there is no mystery too difficult for you. Tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. <clears throat> the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. 
The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lie in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a, with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast minds be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And so God, again, uses a dream to bring Nebuchadnezzar to his senses. A dream just like the one in chapter 2 that scared him. And for good reason, it scared him. He saw in that dream a once flourishing tree be brought down by the hands of God. God is going to attack the one thing that Nebuchadnezzar prides himself in. It is in his kingdom. In the previous chapters, God hasn't stripped Nebuchadnezzar of much. He has been awed, Nebuchadnezzar, by the power and the majestic nature of God. But God has not stripped away what he loves dearly. And at last, Daniel appears before the king. Uh, we're not told if king, the king summoned Daniel specifically, but it does seem that he has confidence that Daniel would be able to interpret the dream. And he refers to Daniel by his Babylonian name, not his Hebrew name, Belteshazzar. No mention of, of Daniel's God is made within this text, but only the phrase, the spirit of of the holy gods, as we've seen multiple times. And so why does he not summon Daniel first? Why does he not mention Daniel's God? Why the more general reference to gods? And so it's not too difficult to theorize an answer. At the pinnacle of his success, pride and arrogance have swollen the king's ego. How could he retain his pride if he admitted the futility of his own religion? How could he keep his image and honor in praising the God of one of the nations that he is now subjected to himself? Uh, most distressing to the king was the second act of the dream, where an angelic watcher enters the scene calling for the tree to be cut down and its branches to be removed and its fruit to be scattered. A metal band was to be wrapped around it, prohibiting its growth. 
the tree has now become a creature living in the open fields with the beast and having a mind like the beast. The king may not understand the symbolism, but the words spoken by the watcher clearly trouble King Nebuchadnezzar. The words struck terror into the heart of a ruler that is proud and arrogant. The scripture says that the sentence was a decree from the angelic watchers, a decision that is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high God is the ruler of men. He bestows on whom he wishes and he sets over it over the lowliness of men. And then King Nebuchadnezzar implores Daniel for the meaning of this dream. And so let's pick this up here in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that it tops reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant in which was food for all under which beast of the field found shade and in whose branches the bird, birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the end of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And so Daniel, fully grasping the dream and its interpretation, has a dramatic change in appearance. Something about his countenance changes. And from his body language, the king must know that this Revealed dream is bad news. And so then, nevertheless, the king is intent on knowing what the dream means. And he encourages Daniel not to be distressed by the dream, but tell him what it means. It seems that Daniel, in this moment, is more deeply affected by this dream than the king is. 
And so Daniel prefaces the interpretation with, with this sincere, sincere expression of love and concern for the king. He, he wished that the dream did not apply to him, but to one of the king's enemies, not the king himself. Daniel is truly committed to serve his king and to contribute to his well-being. And Daniel, not only do we see one who fully understands biblical submission to authority and leadership, we see one who practices it. Daniel still is faithful to this king. He now reveals to Nebuchadnezzar the, the meaning of the dream, concluding with a course of action that might delay or perhaps momentarily uh, delay this adversity from coming to the king. On one hand, the tree depicts things as they are. Uh, the increasing height and, and the beauty of the tree depicts the rapidly increasing majesty and splendor of King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But on the other hand, the tree reveals the ideal or the standard by which Nebuchadnezzar's reign will be evaluated. And it is on the basis of the failure of Nebuchadnezzar to live up to that standard that he is brought low. Nebuchadnezzar judged himself and his kingdom according to the world's standards of power and greatness and glory. And by that standard, the king has done well. But the tree was not created primarily for his glory or his greatness. The kingdom was created to provide shelter and food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, providing and protecting the earthly animals. And that is symbolic that his kingdom would be one where people would find refuge and harbor in the world. But rather than looking upon his wealth and his power as divinely bestowed on him to be a good steward of, to use to benefit the weak and the poor, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have used his power to oppress the powerless. And for this reason, Nebuchadnezzar will be brought low. The figure of the tree is cut down and banded for seven years. And reluctantly, Daniel reveals to King Nebuchadnezzar that at the time, uh, that a time of, of dire discipline is in front of him, that he's going to be cut down and become unearthly creatures. He's going to become a bird-like, beast-like creature with hair that resembles the eagles and nails that have bird claws. He's going to graze like the beast of the field without shelter. So the dew of heaven drenches him, even thinking he is a beast. And all of that happens to the king will be done not for his ultimate destruction, but all of this happens for his ultimate deliverance and restoration. The humiliation will be seven years in length. And the basis of his restoration will be his acknowledgement of the sovereign almighty God who rules in heaven, who both rises up kingdoms and puts them down. His restoration to sanity and power will come when he acknowledge, acknowledges that he is God's unworthy servant who has been given power to benefit and bless others rather than to exalt himself. And in verse 27, we find a key passage here. Daniel goes beyond the dream and its meaning to reveal to the king 
preventative measures that he can take to possibly delay the discipline and uh, prolong his prosperity. Daniel encourages the king to break away from his sin, to practice righteousness, to cease in his iniquities, and to show mercy to the poor. It is here that we find the king's sins more specifically exposed and the true nature of his repentance be made known to the king. It is his pride and his arrogance that have been exposed as the root of his sin. The fruit of sin that seems to be about self-promotion and the the oppression of the poor and the denial of the existence of God. And so, look, it's important that we see Daniel leaking pride to oppression in this text. The king's pride is, has resulted in the oppression of the poor. The king's humility is the cure resulting in justice and mercy. And what is the connection between pride and oppression? Well, pride is kind of like plagiarism. It attempts to grasp from others for ourselves, a pride that doesn't belong to us. Nebuchadnezzar took all the glory and the greatness of his kingdom, and he gave it to himself. He did not give glory to God. In fact, he began to set himself in the seat of God, much like other glory-seeking creatures have in Scripture done mainly Satan himself. Taking a glory which doesn't belong to him causes him to see himself as better than others. And that is the result in our lives. When we take a glory that isn't ours, but was given to us by God, and we make it about ourselves, we deem ourselves to be better than other people's. Pride ignores and denies the truth that flourishing comes from God as a gift of his grace and not a reward for our greatness. Pride also interprets Others who are in poverty or weaker than we are as proof of their inferiority and even as a penalty for their inferiority. Sooner or later, pride justifies to us using our power to rightly take advantage of the poor and the weak to gain for ourselves. But the the Christian perspective of wealth and poverty is the exact opposite to the pagan one that's seen in Nebuchadnezzar. In the Christian world, the strong Help the weak. In the pagan perception, the wealthy, uh, the perception of wealth and poverty assumes that the strong have the right to gain at the expense of the weak. Thus, pride leads to oppression. And so let's finish this chapter out. In verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of, of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Immediately the word 
was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And it flips back here to the first person narrative. Nebuchadnezzar writes these in his own word. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And friends, this is the dynamite passage for King Nebuchadnezzar. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The lesson here for King Nebuchadnezzar is both personal and private. A personal and private intervention in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar that brings him to his knees in humiliation. And then he raises in praise after bowing his knees. It is a lesson for all of us. And thus, this testimony of the king is a matter of public record, even though it does not flatter him. One of the most interesting things, and what I love about our scripture, not the most, but very much, is is the way that our scripture points light of the folly of the human condition. Every king that has ever existed with an empire, in writing about themselves, writes about their power and their majesty and their glory, their successes and their accolades. They give you all the evidence they need to tell you how great they are. Only through other kingdoms that come alongside those kings or conquer those kings do you hear about those kings' mistakes and their follies. But in the word of God, there's an honest admission to the folly of man. Abraham, in our scripture, a man of great power and status, tells us about his weakness and his folly. King David, a man to be revered as a man after God's own heart, in the Bible, he is exposed as an adulterer. His weakness is made known to us. Paul struggles with doing the right thing. One of the joys of our scripture is it tells us who we are accurately. It doesn't make us uh, to think that we're more than ourselves. It tells us about who we need our God, and who we are. I think that's wonderful. And so what lesson can we learn from this text? Well, along with your own thoughts, I I think that we need to consider this. Four things here. Uh, Number one is this, is that pride is insanity. Pride is insanity. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's experience highlights and illustrates to us the important principle between pride and insanity. Now, there are some who read this text and they see a mental illness that falls 
on Nebuchadnezzar. That, that could be, there actually is in uh, this psychological book, uh, there's something called DSMs. They're diagnostic measures of, of what kind of mental illness you have. There are, also, there are mental illnesses that talk about becoming like an animal, believing that you are an animal. And so is that what is happening here? I, I, I mean, I don't think that's happening here. What I think is happening here is something much more significant. Um, what is it that separates us from the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air? It is the stamped image of God himself as the supreme creation in the world. God stamps us with his image, meaning he gives us his character. He gives us his purpose. He gives us a, a sense of justice and a love for the world. God images himself in us. And I think that there's something really beautiful in considering this, that what is happening here is that God, through his grace, is removing all the elements of God's image on humanity to teach Nebuchadnezzar who's really in charge. Who in this world knows more about what it means to be dependent than livestock or the beast of the field? Every single day of their life, they know that they're dependent. God has taken away Nebuchadnezzar's ability to reason, to make sense of the world, to gain power. All gifts God has given to us through his image, he's removed those to make him like a beast. Pride is akin to insanity. The other thing that I think that we learn here is that worship is our highest calling. If the king's self-congratulation was the cause of his humiliation, his worship was the turning point for his return of his sanity and the restoration of his power. Worship is our highest calling. It sets mankind apart from beast. Worship sees God for who he is. Worship sees man for who we are. Worship helps us live life as it's truly meant to be. Worship is the foundation for sanity because when we fail to worship God, we begin our fall and we become more like beast the more we worship things that aren't God. Worship turns mankind in humility and gratitude and worship as we gaze upon the wonder of God's grace. Worship is the way to wisdom because it humbles us and it exalts God. And the third thing I, I think it teaches us is through this testimony of, of Nebuchadnezzar is that our worship relates to our witness. It is an act of worship to share our witness. Sometimes we might, in sharing our faith, see it as a duty or an obligation. But sharing our faith as believers is an act of worship. What Nebuchadnezzar writes here is worshipful to who God is. I would say that to you to remind you that when we speak of our faith, we speak of it as one who worships a God who saved us, who rescued us, who is changing us. And we worship him by telling the world about him. And then the last thing I think it teaches us is I, I think it teaches us that saving faith recognizes God's sovereignty. Now, in the first three chapters, Nebuchadnezzar is wowed by all the works of God. He's awed by the works of God, but he never bows his knee. 
we will only bow our knee when we come to understand it is the most high God that rules the kingdom of men, that we are dependent on him for virtually everything, that he is more glorious and good than us. What is saving faith? Saving faith is more than just saying, I love God. Saving faith is more than just feeling good about God. Saving faith is coming under the knowledge that it is God that we need most in our life, that we're most dependent on. We are dependent on God for our justification. We are dependent on God for our sanctification, meaning that as we love and worship God, God changes our hearts. We are dependent on God, the one who rules the kingdom of men. I'm thankful for the the example of of King Nebuchadnezzar. My heart, it is swift to become prideful. I don't know about yours, but let us learn from Nebuchadnezzar and let us be quick through humility to tear down our cardboard fortresses that we build down, build up every single day. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, and we thank you for who you are. Uh, We thank you for uh, the fact that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And Lord, let us not rob you of your glory. Let us not, with pride in our heart, believe that we were created in our own image. Let us know, Lord, that we were created in your image to reflect your image into the world. And let us worship you as the foundation of our life. Help us, through our worship, to stay on the path of righteousness. And we pray this humbly through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.